We hope to be joined in just a few moments by Caleb Gale, who wrote this really interesting book titled We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creeks, American Identity and Power. Caleb Gale is an award-winning journalist. He writes about race and identity. He's a professor at Northeastern, is a fellow at New America, Penn America, and Harvard's Radcliffe Institute of Advanced Study. He's a visiting scholar at, at NYU. His writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The Guardian, and many other publications. He's the son of Jamaican immigrants, a graduate of the University of Oklahoma and the University of Oxford. And he has an MBA and a master's in public policy. Both of those degrees are from Harvard. Caleb Gale, thank you so much for being with us. Welcome to the show. You have this interesting, well, there's a lot of interesting sentences, but this interesting sentence near the beginning of your book, We Refuse to Forget, got my, caught my attention. You say this, it may seem odd that a son of Jamaican parents would find his way inside American history, especially inside the history of black people, about whom you've likely never heard in a state you've likely never visited. You found the story, and it is a fascinating story, and I, well, profess my ignorance. I didn't know it. So at the risk of asking a terrible question for an author, I'd appreciate if you would give us the outline of the story you tell in this book. And welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Bill, thank you so much, and thanks so much for the introduction. Yeah, I mean, the, the book is essentially a question or answers the question, you know, how, do one, how does one belong and how does one fit in by looking at the story of one family whose um, progenitor, Cow uh, Tom, um, who was a putative slave, uh, a, a fact that the, his descendants still dispute, um, went from um, uh, becoming someone who worked for one of the Creek chiefs, a black man, um, who was a part of the Creek Nation, who emerged as one of the chiefs of the Creek Nation um, post the Civil War, and how after the Civil War helped to negotiate a peace deal with the United States that included emancipation for all the blacks once held as slaves of the Creek Nation, but then also full citizenship rights um, for those black people. And that provided a significant amount of opportunity for Cal Tom's family, as well as the families of many other uh, Black Creeks um, until 1979, when the rules changed, essentially. Um, and essentially, if you were listed as a Creek freedman, right, someone who might be the descendant of someone who was once a slave, even though that was not necessarily a, a badge that would describe everyone, including Cal Tom, um, anyone, essentially, many people who were Black were also given that badge of slavery, even if they didn't earn it. And um, those people who were listed on those Creek Freedmen roles were kicked out, essentially, of the nation. And now Cal Tom's uh, four-time great-grandson has been, for the past several years, making a full-throated attempt to regain citizenship by filing suits in court. And so the story really explores not just that history, but how that history can help us understand a little bit more about how we go about making identity in America. Can we go back and backfill this just story just a bit? Cow, sure. C O W, Tom, Cow Tom. Where does that name come from? Why? Why is that his name? Except it's his name. Sure. I mean that. I mean, essentially, he that was that was his name. Uh, the assumption in for many people is that um, because of his work um, in cattle ranching and whatnot, that that might be one of the reasons, but. Um, we're talking to some of his descendants who have kept that old history tradition alive, but that that was his name. The exact reason for why uh, we don't necessarily have. We are speaking with uh, Professor Caleb Gale. His new book is We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creeks, American Identity and Power. You write this. You say this family story is also the story of black creeks. It is the story of how America remembers itself, how it mourns, how it grows up. Dominario Solomon's Simmons' story, just like that of his ancestor, Cow Tom, is alive and well. It is the story of you and of me. 
why is it the story of how America remembers itself? Why is this a story about how America mourns, how it grows up? Why is it the story of you and me? For sure. You know, I think all of us, right, um, to some extent, uh, aside from those who um, can carefully trace their ancestry to those who were here first, those who were indigenous to this land, all of us at some point or another in our history um, had to come here, whether that was willingly or in the case of many black people um, as slaves. Um, and as such, uh, it has been this enduring project to figure out who has enough power to then become part of this country, part of this republic. And it's an enduring question that we're still asking ourselves today. Um, when we ask questions about whether Black Lives Matter or whether all lives matter or whether we're contemplating who gets to take part in varied institutions without, throughout the United States, we're constantly asking that question. And so the case of Kao Tom, the case of his force hungry grandson now advocating to get that citizenship back that his ancestors once had just 43 years ago is really the, another example, perhaps the most salient example, of trying to identify how it is that we're going to belong. Um, so that's why it's the story of you and you. You and I, we've just met, um, have been spending a good chunk of our time trying to belong. It's just that for some people, um, it's gonna, it has been a bit harder oftentimes because of the color of their skin and their background. Um, and, and that really is the sort of insight that this book provides is hopefully a more imaginative, um, hopefully more expansive and more beautifully complex way of getting to belong. Okay. I, I really appreciate that explanation. I think it would be helpful for our listeners to understand why is it that the United States government, of all of the things it was interested in, had interest uh, in the 1970s, and why tribal leaders had interest in the 1970s of revoking the citizenship of Black Creeks, even those who could trace their history generations back to Cow Tom himself. What was the motivation for this? Sure, right. So I think that, you know, ascertaining exactly what someone's motivation is or was is always going to be incredibly difficult. However, you know, there are a few things that we do know, right? Um, you know, it had been the effort of the United States government dating back to the late 1800s through something called the Dawes Commission, which sought to reallocate the land in Indian territory that we now call Oklahoma. Um, and in so doing, created these very narrow categories um, for people to become listed as um, a member of the Creek Nation and so on. And for a lot of them, they created distinctions that didn't so much matter to the Creek Nation before, one of which was becoming listed as a Creek freedman, right? Um, as we talked about, kind of this badge of slavery that was stamped on all Black people, regardless of their histories, their complex and unique histories in the Creek Nation. And so as such, essentially all that happened in 1979 was that the Creek Nation, um, under the leadership of someone named Chief Claude, Claude, Claude Cox, um, essentially went back to those distinctions, right? And so as such, anyone who was Creek Freedman and not someone who was on the by blood or full blood rolls of the nation, someone who wasn't listed as a citizen in that way, um, then lost their citizenship. And in his mind, um, during a meeting that he had in the 70s, he clearly said, look, I, I, I want to make sure that this stays a nation of what he called Indians, which for, for those who are listening was him trying to signify that we need to try and limit the, the aperture for people to enter this nation or to declare citizenship in this nation um, because there's a certain purity that he was wanting to maintain. So that's, that's really both the backstory as well as the motivation as close as we can call it and name it um, that led to where, where we are now. This brings the story forward uh, a, a lot, but I'm wondering if you might be able to uh, put this history uh, and into in, this perspective and tie it into the fact that in July 2020, the United States Supreme Court decided that much, much of eastern Oklahoma 
had to remain Native American territory. Um, can you connect those dots for us? Sure, yeah, I wrote about it a little bit in, in, in Time Magazine back when the McGirt decision um, was decided, right? The, the reality is that um, the, what that does, I think, for all of us is it clearly demonstrates that the, the history that, was, that, that essentially architected the way in which we see the United States has in many cases been bereft of the sort of details that we need, right? So, you know, a good chunk of the Eastern Territory should still sit. Eastern portion of Oklahoma should still sit in the um, in the jurisdiction of the Creek Nation. It didn't go anywhere, right? Um, it's essentially that you know Indian country still remains um, in the way that it is intact, in the way that it is. And so perhaps I think the the main lesson here that kind of ties these things together is that perhaps if we remember this history for all that it is, not just for what it is now, we can perhaps ensure that uh, we don't let these portions of American history that influence us today go by the wayside, right? Whether that's Cal Tom and his ancestors or in the case of McGirt, kind of who exactly has jurisdictional authority parts of uh, parts of the country, these portions of history are important in not just what happened before, but how what happened before influences who we might become. I was struck by the the tone of your book. And there there's an optimism to this very sad and disturbing story. Uh, let me read two sentences and I want to know how you end up here. You say this near the end of the book. So now my original explanation is told with more confidence than before. I am who I am because my ancestors were fully black and fully Jamaican. I am fully American and carry with me every bit of the stories that made me. The stories of the Black Creek inspired my reexamination of who I am and where I come from. In writing this, I ask you not to give up on your vision of America. I'm asking you to make America even more beautiful, to actively paint a bigger picture, a richer one that encompasses all the things we've been all the ways we've been so that we might realize all we can become. Why does this story leave you with that sense of optimism of all things? For sure. I think that when we examine stories, especially ones that have, you know, yet to be told in mainstream audiences, right? The stories, these sorts of stories and ones adjacent to it have been told by academics and historians for many years, as well as by, um, those who are part of this experience of the traditions of oral history, but for journalists such as myself telling these stories in mainstream ways and in mainstream to mainstream audiences, I think that it is clear to me oftentimes that uh, the the trope, if it bleeds, it leads, is the way in which we try and drive traffic. Right, the more controversial, the more devastating. But I think perhaps that oftentimes clouds our ability to talk about how people who have been on the margins, have lived abundantly on the margins, right? I mean, even though to some great extent, Cal Tom's family has been marginalized twice, both by being members of the Creek Nation and then also by being Black in America, they still live lives that were abundant and creative. And even in their nation, they were able to craft an identity that provided them access to land, that provided them access to in history, that provided them access to wealth generation opportunities we've yet to see. So we, we, we still haven't seen today. So I think to some extent, the reason that I landed optimism isn't necessarily because I so much believe inherently that America can. It's that I believe that oftentimes the decision to live abundantly even on the margins is a form of resistance and democratic participation um, that, quite frankly, provides me a great deal of optimism. And I, I think I'm a product of that as the son of immigrants. I am, I am, I'm the product of people who chose, despite the, the marginality which, to which they were exposed, the marginality to which they were exposed, did live lives that were abundant. And perhaps in so doing and perhaps in us collectively remembering, we can provide greater opportunities for people to do that today, for people to find more expansive ways to belong. One last question before we go. Is this story about the Creek Nation over, settled? Uh, it ends where it ends in the, what happened in the 1970s? 
or there's more there's more of the story still to be written i think there's there's always more to a story that's that's left to be written it's always the frustrating um and unenviable position of being a writer but I, yes there's a whole lot more left to this story and kind of a constant struggle to regain that citizenship um that was once lost so yes there's a whole lot more to be written a whole lot more to be explored We've been speaking with Caleb Gale. His new book is We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creeks. And that's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating story of of the people we don't know much, most people don't know much about. A True Story of Black Creeks, American Identity and Power. It's a fabulously written book. It's a fabulous, it's a very interesting story. It's one I didn't know and that I'm glad that I now do. Caleb Gale, thank you so much for your time today and thank you for your book. Thank you, and thank you to your audience. Have a great one. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. And tonight, the state delegation is in solidarity with our mayor and with Congressman McGovern, who is leading the charge to stop the closure of the VAM leads. So we are completely committed as your state elected officials, and we are called tonight by our congressman to stand with him, and we will be here tonight, and we will be here every step of the way. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. A lot of mattress stores, all they talk about is price. Sale, 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 save, 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 blah, blah, blah. I get it. No one wants to pay a dollar more than you have to. But what do you really know about mattresses? Are you an expert? I'm not. And I have a furniture store. So I at least know a little. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon Furniture. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Therapeutic the best mattress value I've ever found. And believe me, I've looked around. Therapeutic mattresses are made in Brockton. I've walked the floor and it was reassuring because there's no toxicity, no off-gassing. Therapeutic mattresses are clean and made by fellow Red Sox fans. Play the sale, sale, sale game if you want. That's not for me. A therapeutic mattress from Talon Furniture is your best bet and best deal. Today, tomorrow, or whenever you decide to buy a new mattress. Beer Heaven at Cooper's Corner in Florence with Beer Mike. Mountains Walking Brewery in Bozeman. This brewery was started by a guy who grew up in Taiwan. The name Mountains Walking comes from a 13th century Zen philosopher named Dogen. And he basically said something along the lines of, when you understand the walking of the mountains, you understand yourself. This is from their seasonal sweets series. And it's a sour ale with banana, maple syrup, cinnamon, and Lactose. Huh, these beers are so weird and I love it. This one, I think it's got about 2,200 pounds of banana puree per batch. That's about how many bananas we buy a week. Super banana-y. Smells like fried plantains. Oh man, I like this. And then I smell the cinnamon too. This one I just want to contemplate. Part of that whole philosophy and, and what the brewery name is about is it's something to stop and think about. You hit the nail on the head. It's almost like a banana cream pie. Find your favorite beer and your next favorite beer at Cooper's Corner, Florence. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your spring, summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. Space, a final frontier. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This is Salman Hamid's universe. Ridiculously large and largely ridiculous universe. We start with breaking news from outer space. Salman Hamid is, of course, a Hampshire College professor and an astronomer. He is with us every month. I'd like to find out. What's happened to my good friend, the James Webb Space 
telescope. It's a million miles away. Everything is great. It's going fabulous. It's in a super safe place in a lovely neighborhood and giving amazing insight into the beginnings of the universe. And then something bad has happened. Sam, tell us. Okay, so. Uh, well, thank you, Bill. And 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 hold on. Uh, before we get carried away with that, so two things. One, it has, it is working great. It is so far working better than expected. So that's all great. Uh, people are very excited about it. And they recently announced that the first scientific images from James Webb Space Telescope, and you can mark your calendar, are going to be released on July twelfth. Okay, so that's a big deal. And, and as you can imagine, with uh, the way NASA has worked, their publicity is pretty good, <laughs> meaning to say that their first images, I think, are not going to be, oh, here is this random boring object. I mean, I, I would assume that their first objects are going to be amazing. So July 12th, that's when their first images are going to be publicly released and to mark your date. Now, that's a good news. Should we keep on going? <laughs> That's the good news. And, and, and OK, let's stay with the good news for just a second. And then we'll come back, because it's a pretty good teaser, what's going wrong. Um, the images that you expect, are we going to be seeing images from billions of years ago? That, I mean, because this telescope is looking back in time. It's looking back billions of years. What do you, what do you think we're going to see? What, when, actually, that's probably an unfair question. How long ago are these uh, were these objects that we will see in existence? Well, it depends what the first image is going to be. I mean, it could be about a star-forming region that is in our own galaxy a few hundred or a few thousand light years away. So that means that those are just a few thousand years years ago those objects but it could also be uh, an object a galaxy that is a billion light years away then it would be a billion uh, years old i mean so uh, i mean in some sense uh, i mean everything in astronomy is travel time travel right i mean we cannot our limitation is we cannot look in the present uh, so because of the finite speed of light so it depends upon the kind of object they would be looking at my guess would be it would either be a star forming region in our galaxy. That was the type of image, the first one that came out from the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, and that was, uh, that was quite brilliant. Uh, and James Webb Space Telescope is designed to look through some of those star forming regions and look for details because it works in the infrared where a lot of the light does not get absorbed by gas and dust. Now it could also be, the other places like you know that far away galaxies it is also designed to look for some of the sort of like you know, farthest galaxies in the universe and hence uh, because the farther you are the farther back in time you are looking because it has taken light that much longer to get to us so that is also another possibility that you can have an image that is of those so so we don't know and they they've been pretty good so far about Keeping secrets, and so I, I don't think we will find out before July twelfth what uh, an image is going to be. Now, by, by the way, I should mention that I'm traveling to a conference on July twelfth, and I was supposed to go sort of like during uh, the daytime, and I am seriously considering sort of like you know modifying my ticket to go later that day simply to be part of uh, this because I have a channel in Pakistan as well. We're sort of like, you know, I mean, these kind of things are a big deal and this is going to be pretty big. So uh, I am actually seriously thinking like, you know, to delay half a day or a day because on July 12th, I think it's going to be a press conference. It's going to be analysis of what the image is and so on and so forth. So, uh, so yeah, that would be fun stuff. Okay. What happened to the telescope out there a million miles okay. away? So it's, it's, it's a million miles away. You cannot go and fix it. It's by itself, it's been doing pretty good. But as it turns out, end of May, uh, there may have, it was hit by a, uh, a micrometeoroid. So these are small particles of dust, like, you know, uh, sand grain size that are in space. I mean, those are, those are in space. I mean, like, you know, they come in and, and, and 
when there is a meteor shower, we all get very excited about it. It's like, hey, look, it gets burnt in the atmosphere, uh, which is all well and good because it makes a nice streak, tiny pieces of rock, tiny pieces of dust grains, and they burn in the atmosphere. Now, if you are a million miles away, one of the reasons why we put it a million miles away is because there is no atmosphere to block light, uh, block certain types of light, and it can have a great view and it's clear. But that means that it doesn't protect you from these kind of dust grains that are floating in our solar system. And it is designed to withstand certain types of like, you know, small, uh, what are called micrometeoroids, meaning to say tiny pieces uh, of dust hitting it. Uh, and, and the mirrors are designed to withstand that. The one, and it has already been hit by four pieces before, and not a problem. Those were all within the threshold of it withstanding those. However, there was one at the end of May that hit it, which was a little bit bigger. And they are, uh, and and so it hit. There are uh, hexagonal mirrors. There are eighteen of those. It hit one of them. NASA is trying to assess the damage, and they think it's going to be okay. It's not a big deal but it was bigger than what they had anticipated it's going to hit at. Now, during meteor showers, by the way, the telescope does take evasive measures, meaning to say it tries to clear out from that path that uh, like, you know, that it doesn't sort of like, you know, so it, it, because Earth goes through this debris in our orbit. And that's the reason why we can predict, hey, there is a cool meteor shower coming, right? I mean, that's how we know because it's not that those meteors are coming to us, but rather Earth in its orbit is going through these dust particles that are left over from previous comets. And you are going through it. And as we go through it, these dust particles enter our atmosphere and we go look, ooh and ah. Now, same thing is true for James Webb Space Telescope a million miles further uh, away. And so it takes a basic measure, but there are also normal small dust particles going around. I mean, if you have no meteor shower, you would still get on average about eight or so or 10 meteors per hour. So yeah, those things are there. And hopefully, hopefully, this is where astronomers come in. We are not superstitious people, but we do cross uh, our fingers and also we knock on wood and we do all of these things when it comes down to James Webb Space Telescope. <laughs> We are speaking with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. He has recently been to Pakistan on a scientific exploration, and he has news for us, something I didn't know but just learned this morning, which is that Uranus and Neptune are blue. Well, we're going to find out. We say we have breaking news from outer space, and today we have a lot of breaking news from outer space, and we will be right back. Get in on the conversation. Call 413-586-7140. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The city of Northampton has implemented a water use restriction for residents. Effective immediately, no non-essential water use is allowed between the hours of 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Non-essential water use includes watering of lawns and gardens, the non-commercial washing of vehicles, building surfaces, parking lots, and sidewalks. A bill that would allow immigrants in the country illegally to obtain state driver's licenses in Massachusetts was approved by the Massachusetts House yesterday over the veto of Republican Governor Charlie Baker. The 119 to 36 vote means the bill now heads to the Massachusetts Senate, which could also vote to override Baker's veto as early as today. Senator Joe Comerford. We don't see eye to eye with him entirely, but that's okay, right? It's our job to act in the best interests or what we think are the best interests of constituents. And when we disagree with the governor, we override him, which is what we'll do on the Work and Family Mobility Act. If the Senate can muster the needed two-thirds majority in favor of the proposal, as expected, the bill will become law despite Baker's objections. And the Massachusetts Data Hub is up and running. Developed by the Executive Office of Technology Services, the user-friendly data search tool allows users to search state resources and data published by the state government. Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito says it is critical that state data is available to municipal leaders so they can make better informed decisions in tackling the many challenges their communities and constituents face. 
Heavy rain and some thunderstorms early this morning, but that rain will taper off to just some scattered showers for the rest of the day. In fact, most of the afternoon will be dry with a high of 74 to 78. Clearing breezy tonight, overnight low 50 to 56. Mostly sunny, windy on Friday with a high of 78 to 82. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El superintendente de las escuelas públicas de Holyoke, Anthony Soto, presentó el miércoles en un evento público en Heritage Park los pasos que el distrito está desarrollando sobre la planificación estratégica y el cambio de zonificación. Soto señaló que durante el año se ha pasado por un proceso de plan de entrada. Después de escuchar a más de 1,200 personas, desde estudiantes hasta personal, familias y miembros de la comunidad, se les preguntó qué cosas son importantes para ellos, qué funciona bien y qué no. Seis meses después sentimos que no hemos terminado dijo Soto. Con ello se está desarrollando un plan estratégico que atienda todas las cosas que surgieron en los procesos del plan de entrada. Se formó un comité asesor de 45 personas para ayudar a desarrollar un plan para los próximos tres años. La sesión pública del miércoles fue la tercera de tres en las que se han estado compartiendo cuáles son algunos de los grandes componentes de ese plan y a la vez recibir comentarios de la comunidad ya que el distrito escolar quiere asegurarse de tener la mayor participación posible en este proceso. La versión la preliminar del plan estratégico será hecha pública el lunes en la reunión del comité escolar y luego habrá una implementación completa del plan estratégico en algún momento de agosto. En otras informaciones, los defensores de la reforma migratoria y la seguridad vial han pasado años presionando sin éxito a Beacon Hill para que amplíe el acceso a las licencias de conducir a los inmigrantes indocumentados y a pesar de la objeción del gobernador Charlie Baker, la política podría convertirse en ley a fines del jueves. La Cámara votó 119 contra 36 el miércoles por la tarde para anular el veto del gobernador republicano al proyecto de ley que permite a los inmigrantes sin estatus legal en Massachusetts solicitar licencias de conducir estándar aquí. Se espera que el Senado, donde los demócratas también tienen una gran mayoría, haga lo mismo el jueves. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We can a conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. Salman, you just returned from Pakistan. What were you doing there? Yeah, so uh, I mean, I was eating mangoes, uh, and the mango season is just uh, starting. So I have to say, uh, it was it was okay. Uh, that was, I, I did try to time it, but usually the peak mangoes are in sort of like later June, July, and August. And uh, but I just got the beginning part of it. So that was my sort of like the primary goal uh, to get there and. For people who don't understand that, I mean, mango is, mangoes are sort of like, you know, a whole thing, meaning to say there are many, many, many types and they are much, much, much tastier than usually the mangoes that are available here. So over there. So, okay, well, in addition to mangoes. Oh, oh, I see. <laughs> um, I was there, uh, apart from a family visit as well, what I was there was, uh, as uh, you know, Bill, I create videos for audiences in Pakistan. So these are astronomy videos on YouTube, which uh, talk about current astronomy things, the kind of things that I talk about here as well. Uh, but they are in Urdu, the language in Pakistan, and, uh, and to build curiosity and also engage audiences over there. So I started really, my, my, my YouTube channel really took off uh, during the pandemic and uh, like 20, 2021 and i have a team over there in pakistan that actually helps me edit videos and and other things but i would not been there i would not actually met my team actually in the last three years because last time i was there was december 2019 and so i met uh people over there but also when i was there i also met with different groups that are involved in astronomy and science in general, especially for public communication. And that was an amazing experience because there is a thriving amateur astronomy scene. I mean, this, Pakistan doesn't have many professional astronomers, which is a shame, but amateur astronomers, they are thriving and they are holding public events. They are uh, sort of like now uh, holding sort of like, you know, uh, various kinds of uh, observing nights, bringing telescopes. And there are some very serious astronomers that have 
uh, big telescopes that they can actually do research grade stuff as well. So I met with these different societies in Lahore, in Karachi, in Islamabad. Uh, but then uh, uh, there is a Pakistan Science Club. It's a nonprofit where there is this guy who has been working for the last 10, 15 years and he creates kids, really, really cheap kids uh, for uh, to make telescopes. Those are like, I mean, if you convert it, it's going to be about $10. And then he holds workshops in which kids can actually create these small uh, telescopes with PVC pipes, with sort of like small pipes and it has cardboard things in it. And there's telescopes, small telescopes. They can work on it for two hours, build one, and then kids can take home. They can actually use it. And, and so I met with them and it was just, uh, just a fantastic experience in uh, talking to them. That must be amazing for kids to be able to create something that brings them closer to, I mean, what can they see? The, the, the moon, uh, uh, I would say primarily as, as an object they can see better. Yeah, and, and the moon people uh, underestimated and Bill, you and I were talking about it too because of your new telescope. Uh, people underestimate it, but moon is amazing. Uh, and especially if you look at quarter moon, people think about the full moon as the best time to look actually no. Uh, it's too bright and the sun is exactly on the opposite side. The best time to look at the moon, even through a binocular or a small telescope, is when it's a quarter. Because then the sun is on a side, it's on its side, the sunlight is coming in and you can actually see the depth of craters. You can see shadows. And so, yeah, so from that perspective, kids can um, use that. And, and of course, uh, perennial astronomy issues, like you, know, you can also look at neighbor's windows and things like that. I mean, I think that's what, you can also see that with a small telescope and you can see, hey, I can see pigeons or whatever, like, you know, so those things are there, but they are also building uh, reasonable sized telescopes that are being built in Pakistan. And again, the cost is really cheap. Uh, and so I met with them, but I will, there is also a new children's science museum in Karachi. It's a four story building. And unfortunately it's a city of 16 million. This is the only uh, Children's Science Museum, or only Science Museum actually in Karachi, which is a shame. But this museum, which just started in last October, it's actually really world-class. We are helping them consult and build them uh, exhibits regarding astronomy. So the astronomy wing hasn't opened yet. And so we are working with them to uh, sort of like, you know, uh, to work through uh, positioning of stars, what kind of stars there are, also phases of the moon, eclipses. So we are actively working with them to uh, build this uh, exhibit, which is the astronomy part. It's not open yet. And for a little bit of a future, uh, but we are actively looking for it, a planetarium. Uh, I mean, when I was uh, growing up, there was one planetarium that opened up in Karachi that was in 1983, which was amazing. And it influenced me. I was interested in astronomy. And uh, unfortunately, that planetarium never got new programs or never got renovated since 1983. But this group, it's a nonprofit that is a science museum. They are working on it. They want to build a state-of-the-art planetarium. So we are also helping them do that. So these we were in negotiations with that. We have been speaking with Salman Hamid, Hampshire College professor and astronomer. We promised you that you were going to hear about how we now know that Uranus and Neptune are blue, but it's probably been true for some, I don't know, billions of years. So that <laughs> news is going to wait until our next time we visit with Salman. Thank you so much for your time. It's always great speaking with you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. And I thought if we talk about Uranus, Monty has to be here. So I we can talk about it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's true. Thank you, Salman. Thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. In East Hampton, what we're doing is we are migrating all of our public records requests to civilian function in the IT department as they have a thorough 
handle on our digital records, but also know where a lot of the hard copies are and can work with not only the police, but other department heads to get those requests filled. 1015-1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at WeinzickNursery.com. Yankee Home is having its biggest sale of the year. Right now, you can save up to $2,500 in free labor during Yankee Home's Thank You America Month. If you call Yankee Home right now and mention WHMP, you can save big on a new bath or walk-in shower. You can also upgrade to the kitchen of your dreams or install new energy-efficient windows and doors, all with up to $2,500 in free labor by calling and mentioning WHMP right now. It's Yankee Homes Thank You America sale now through July 4th. Visit Yankee Home right now for more details. Pie is like duct tape. It fixes everything. We must have pie, the great playwright David Mamet said. Stress cannot exist in the presence of a pie. So you go to Paul and Elizabeth's, you order a slice of pie, or you call and order a whole pie. I'll pick it up Saturday. They make cream pies at Paul and Elizabeth's and fruit pies, whatever's in season, peach pie in deep summer, apple in fall. Pie fixes everything. Therefore, Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant is a repair shop inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. Printing costs sky high, businesses spend up to 3% of revenue generating documents, and many businesses fail to budget the expense. Sound familiar? Get a handle on your printing costs with Total Print Pro from HL Dempsey in West Springfield. HL Dempsey will do an on-site analysis of your copy and print usage and come up with a customized, comprehensive solution that will simplify your world and save you money. Go to hldempsey.com to find out more. HL Dempsey, serving Western New England for over 50 years. HL Dempsey, just dependable. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5, 1400, and 1240. WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our rabbi segment with Rabbi Justin David and the Reverend Avril Elizabeth Blackburn. Justin David is from Congregation B'nai Israel, and Avril Elizabeth Blackburn is from the Florence Congregational Church. The three of us were talking during the break about a life of service and lives of service. Justin, could you bring our listeners in on that conversation, please? Sure, sure. So that there was a tremendous loss to the community uh, just a few days ago. Marsha Burek who um, served as the assistant to the mayor and had a number of other posts in civic government and had deep relationships all throughout this community uh, passed away uh, just a few days ago. And, and the reason why I wanted to bring, uh, bring up her life is because it was such an exemplary life of service in every way. She was uh, a dedicated public servant and long after she stopped working in the mayor's office, she was um, very deeply involved in Northampton civic affairs. Uh, she was a pillar of the Northampton Jewish community and showed up and came to everything and supported so many things and had such constant deep friendships all throughout the community with people from all walks of life, all generations. And, and I hold up her example as, uh, as a life of service. And, and, I use, and I wanna draw on her example as a way to ask this question, uh, a couple of questions. Number one, what does it mean to live a life of service? How do we do that? And what can the role of spiritual communities, religious communities, uh, whether they be legacy communities or sort of new, newer sort of pop-up communities, what can the role of these communities be uh, in nurturing and supporting lives of service? For someone like Marsha, I think the two seamlessly went hand in hand. It was how she was brought up. It's how she saw her place. Uh, she wove in her, her Jewish background, her education, her professional life, her personal life into the seamless whole. And, um, and Avril, I'm wondering what uh, some of your initial thoughts are on how a church community in your case or a spiritual community in general can help us 
form our lives into lives of service? Well, a spiritual community gives us that deep-seated need to serve, that mm -hmm. deep-seated need to serve God in some way, to serve his community in some way. That's where it comes from. And the spiritual community would also give you the strength to be able to do that, would give you the nurturing that you would need to be able to uphold a life of service, I would think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It would just be an intrinsic part of all that, just kind yeah. of in the background as part of who you are. And yet, not everyone in a religious community lives lives of service. I mean, there's something special about them that person, those people. And Marsha Burek was a really special person. Uh, in addition to everything she did for the community, she was, as Justin alluded to, a real part of the fabric of Northampton. People relied on her, sought out her wisdom and her advice and her perspective. And I'm wondering if you could say something about that relationship between her beliefs and her commitment to a religious community and her commitment to the civic society the civil society of which she was a part i'll start with justin yeah. go back to uh go back to uh, uh pastor Ava elizabeth blackburn justin yeah. well it's it's a it's a really sort of um interesting question to ponder because in jewish tradition uh a person's beliefs are essentially their own business and particularly in uh modern judaism you know modern american judaism as well as in you know other parts of the world as well um struggling, being an active struggle with normative concepts or, or even beliefs or practices uh, is part of what we do. So that makes it really complicated to say, because Marsha had a belief in X, Y, or Z, she did this out in the world. I, I would say it's more of a web. Um, I think for someone like Marsha, as well as many people, there's the sense of belonging and mission and obligation and joy that is part of this whole web of connection that comes to encompass uh, you know, community of heritage and, and spirituality, as well as um, or along with the general community. Uh, there's both what we you know, might say in sort of um, kind of Jewish circles, there's particular particularism and universalism. There's dedicated, there's dedication to one's community of choice or origin, uh, and that goes hand in hand with the universal mission. And how each of us weaves that together, I think is um, really part of the mystery. Let me turn from Rabbi Justin to Pastor Averill. Averill, what I do you think I think mission is very important, but the point I would like to make is that in Christianity, we believe that everyone has a gift from God. And this gift of God can be anything. It can be music, it can be a love of animals, it can be communicating with children, it can be mission, it could be preaching, it could be absolutely anything. It could be sewing a dress. It could be small, it could be great, it could be anything under the sun. And this type of civic duty is certainly a gift from God and one that Marcia clearly listened to and clearly followed. And she had this gift and she listened to the gift and she followed through with the gift and that is admirable. Hmm. Yeah, she was just a really warm, kind, gentle, smart, incisive person. Um, and we, we will all miss her. Uh, I'd like to turn, if I might, to another topic. There are a lot of holidays or observant days of observation, both in Judaism and Christianity, uh, this week and last. Uh, let's start with you, Justin David. Rabbi, what yeah. is it in the Jewish calendar? So in the Jewish calendar, in, in the Jewish calendar, we just celebrated the holiday of Shavuot, which I call the most important Jewish holiday that no one has ever heard of. In fact, in... Uh, the film, The Kings of Comedy, there's a famous line where uh, Sandra Bernhardt turns to Jerry Lewis and says, what are you waiting for, Shavuos? And, um, and it's a great line, but it illustrates how 
the, the holiday can be a touchstone to those in the know. And for those who don't know about it, it's, it's a bit of a curiosity. But actually, uh, in Jewish tradition, there, you know, there are three pilgrimage festivals. Uh, Sukkot, which happens in the fall, Passover, which is the early spring, and then Shavuot, which is the late spring. And in the Bible, it's the, the ceremony of the first fruits. But after the destruction of the temple, it becomes a holiday that uh, is associated with uh, receiving the event in the Torah of uh, receiving God's revelation on Mount Sinai. And throughout 2,000 years of Jewish tradition, it's become a holiday to, to do many things, but, um, but it's become a holiday to celebrate sort of the mystery of learning and its nexus and how learning leads, le learning leads to action and to healing uh, in, our, in our world. And so, um, uh, so our celebration at Congregation B'nai Israel is to have an evening of learning, of study. Some people go late into the night and then to have two days of uh, celebratory services. We read the book of Ruth, which is itself a uh, story of a reversal of fortune, uh, a good reversal of fortune from poverty and homelessness to um, ongoing connection and security. Uh, and so one of the things that Peter and I, Ives and I would talk about is the, the relationship between the Jewish and the Christian calendar. And so I'd love to hear from Avril. I know you have Pentecost on the calendar and where does that stand in the life of your community? Yes, well, Pentecost was actually Shavuot for the um, apostles, the 11. They were all gathered together in one place in Jerusalem um, about 50 days after Jesus was crucified, 50 being Pentecost in Greek. And that is when the Holy Spirit descended and tongues of flame came down from the sky. Now, people unfortunately believe that this is when the um, apostles started speaking in tongues. They did not start speaking in tongues. What they started to do is they started to speak in the languages of the other Jews who were in Jerusalem so that they could speak and communicate with the other Jews and start telling them the story of Jesus. So if another Jewish person there spoke Arabic, one of the apostles could suddenly speak Arabic and communicate with him. If another person was from Crete, then an apostle could speak the language of Crete, which would probably be Greek, and would start being able to communicate with him. And so it was a reversal of the Tower of Babel when mm. the people of God suddenly started speaking many different languages so that they couldn't communicate with each other. So yeah. that is the story of Pentecost. We're going to have to leave it there. We'll pick it up next time. I really thank Rabbi Justin David and Reverend Avril Elizabeth Blackburn from the Florence Congregational Church. Thank you so very, very much for being with us on this edition of The Reverend and the Rabbi. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Vaya con Muñoz with Natalia Muñoz, WHMP. I'm not compassionate with people who beat up people because they find it fun. No, 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 no. How many of us are living with pre-existing conditions? You are not protected from being discriminated against. This and more, Saturdays at 10. Vaya con Muñoz with Natalia Muñoz. On 101.5, 1400 and 1240, WHMP, News, Information and the Arts. There's nothing like being in the same room at the same time, sharing your experiences with other women. At Cancer Connections Breast Cancer Support The only group, live and local talk in the valley cry. and for the valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.